A Better Brand of Happiness is my title for the concept of joy, the biblical concept of joy. And it's also the title of this series that I've been teaching on the book of Philippians. And this message is session 35 in that series. Now, in today's session, we're looking at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And uh, this section is, this verse is part of a larger paragraph, a larger section of scripture that goes from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, all the way through Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. And we spent a number of sessions working our way through this verse by verse and looking at each um, section in this paragraph. Um, as always, I want to begin by reading the passage, even though the focus is Philippians 4.8. I want to read the entire paragraph. And so if you would, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And follow along as I read Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. By the way, if you want to follow along in the app, you can tap on the message tab in our app. And um, you can follow along as I read the passage for this morning, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. Rejoice. In the Lord, always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, as you know, if you've attended any of these sessions, or if you've ever heard me speak at all, you know that I believe in what's called the big idea, which is a one-sentence summary of either a paragraph of Scripture or the message itself. And um, as we've worked our way through this paragraph of Scripture verse by verse, I've shown you and I've reminded you over and over again, of what I believe the big idea is for Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And so my big idea statement for this passage is, when you rejoice in the Lord, it will make you gentle, prayerful when anxious, intentional in your thinking, and obedient to God's word. That's my big idea for this section. And here in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, the focus of today's session, we'll be looking at the part that says, intentional in your thinking. My thesis for this session, what I'm trying to teach you in this session, is that when you rejoice in the Lord, it will make you intentional in your thinking. You will choose your thoughts. If you are going to find joy, a better brand of happiness, you need to control your thoughts. That's the That's one of the things that Paul is teaching us in this section. It's one of the points that we are to get at in this session. If you're going to find joy, a better brand of happiness, you need to control 
how you think. You will need to, as I said in previous sessions, be the boss of your thoughts. Instead of letting your thoughts boss you around, which we all do sometimes and too many people do most of the time, instead you need to take control of your thinking and be the boss of your thoughts instead. Okay, that's what we're going to focus on in this session. And let's begin by looking quickly at the grammar of this verse. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Let's look together at the grammar of this verse. And the core of verse 8 consists of eight clauses followed by a command. There are a lot of pieces to verse 8, but we can kind of simplify what it's saying by simply noting that there are eight independent clauses that are followed by a verb of command. That's kind of the core identity of this verse. And so let me show you the structure of this verse right on the verse itself. This verse begins with a few introductory words. And I'm going to actually show it to you, as you see, on the passage, the entire paragraph itself for a moment, and then we'll focus in on the the verse itself. But we're focusing here on verse 8. That's the the verse that we're going to study this morning. And as you see right at the beginning, it begins with the word finally. Now, when I was a kid, my pastor used to use this word finally a lot. And he would use it when he was going through his subpoints of his message. And he would get to the last subpoint of his message and he would say, and finally this. And all of us thought the sermon was almost over. But we were wrong because all that was almost over was the list of subpoints. He had another major point usually or two or more that he was going on to. And we didn't have a copy of his outline. So we didn't know what finally meant. Obviously, if you were to look down in your Bibles, you would see that after this paragraph, there is another. And so Paul is not saying, finally, for the book. He is saying, finally, in in another sense. And what that sense is, is that this finally refers to this entire paragraph. That's one reason why I've put this together as a paragraph. Paul is telling us the final issue he wants to talk about in this section before moving on to his final thought, his next thought in the book, is what we come to in verse 8. So this finally isn't trying to conclude the book, it's trying to conclude this paragraph. And it signals to us a few things. It tells us not only that Paul is wrapping up this paragraph that began in chapter uh, 4, verse 4, but that this word finally is telling us that verses 8 and 9 are linked, okay? Because if Paul said finally in verse 8 and then said something different in verse 9, then obviously verse 8 wasn't finally, it was Second to finally, okay? And so I think what Paul is saying here is, finally, I want you to think and I want you to do. I want you to put into practice. That's what's going on in this, in this verse. Paul is saying, I've got some commands for you. Obviously, I told you that rejoice in the Lord is the head command. It's the major thrust of this passage. And the other commands, uh, be evident, do not be anxious, but present your request to God. These are all subcommands. They're all applications, When Paul begins this verse by saying, finally, he is telling us he has gotten down to the last two conjoined or um, uh, connected ideas, the last two applications, the last two commands of that head command and rejoice. All right, so that's what's going on with with this verse. Now, let's focus in on the verse itself. We've already talked about finally, and let's come next to the word Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Now, 
In the original Greek language, the phrase ancestors isn't there. All there is in the original language is the word brothers. But Paul is not trying to exclude women here. He's not saying, let me just talk to the men here. Now, brothers, do these things. In the original language, it was understood that certain forms of the masculine were inclusive of both men and women. And it used to be true in English that we could say that. Our language has changed. And now if you say something that's masculine, many women will wonder if they are included or excluded from the language. And so the translators of the NIV have added the phrase brothers and sisters, and I think they were right to do that. I think it's helpful for people to understand that not just men are being addressed here, but that Paul is including all believers. And so uh, that's why some translations like the NIV indicate that Paul intended to include women by adding the word and sisters. Now, this word and brothers, this word brothers, finally brothers, is a word of direct address. It is, in its most technical grammatical way, what we would call a vocative of direct address. A vocative is something that you, where you state somebody's name. All right, so if you came to me and said, Brian, that's a vocative of direct address. All right, Paul is using this word brothers as a, as a direct address to the Philippians and, of course, to us. And it flavors what Paul is going to say here with love. It reminds us that because we are in Jesus Christ, we are God's family. Our faith in Christ puts us into the family of God, and there should be a family form of love in our interactions with one another. And even Paul, the great apostle, who had apostolic authority conferred upon him by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, even he wanted to express his love for other believers and to tell them that we are, in a sense, all of the, in this together, that the things that are commanded in this, in this uh, section, in this paragraph, are not harsh commands that come down from a, a top-down authority structure other than the Lord being that authority structure. Rather, Paul is giving us commands, but he's doing it in a way that's encouraging to us, in a way that's loving to us. What he's telling us is, this is God's very best for us. And so before Paul gets into the things that he commands, he wants to remind us that we are all part of the family of God and that our faith in Jesus Christ is what put us in the family of God. Now, the things that Paul commands in this section fall into eight broad categories. They fall into eight broad categories, all right? It's verse 8, and there are eight broad categories that Paul describes in this passage. Of these eight, six of them follow one grammatical form, and two of them follow another grammatical form. Let me show you that in the passage. The grammatical form that is used here is what's called a complete clause, all right? Now, you remember back from grammar school the difference between a phrase and a clause, right? A phrase is a grouping of words that doesn't necessarily form a complete thought. It may not have a verb in it. It often doesn't. A clause does form a complete thought. A clause has a subject and a verb and usually an object. All right, and so Paul uses these clauses. They're dependent clauses because they're not separate sentences, but all of these are a separate idea. If I say whatever is true, that has a subject, a verb, and an object. All right, and so it's a complete clause. So there are six of these clauses that follow, one, that follow one grammatical form. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right is the third. Whatever is pure is the fourth. Whatever is lovely is the fifth. Whatever is admirable is the sixth. 
Those are the six clauses that follow the same form. The subject of that clause in each sense, in each um, instance, is the word whatever, and it's repeated over and over again in every one of these clauses. The verb is is only given to us in the original Greek in the first of these clauses. The rest of them, if they were, if we translated it extremely literally, would be whatever is right, or I'm sorry, whatever is true, sorry. Whatever is true, that's where the verb appears. The rest of them would be like whatever noble, whatever right, whatever pure. The, the verb is not repeated. It's drawn by implication from this original verb. But you would sound like an idiot if you spoke that way in English, right? And so in English, we need to resupply that verb, which the translators of the NIV have done for us. Each of these clauses assumes this verb is from the first clause. But it's a complete clause. It forms a complete idea. Now, each one of these clauses, then, is followed by an adjective. This word true is an adjective. It's a predicate adjective, if you want to be super technical. But it's an adjective. It describes the word whatever. And it tells us the quality of these things. Now, this word whatever is plural, and so are these adjectives. We can't do that in English. We can't say all the things that are... True, I don't know how you put true in the, word, in the plural in English, okay? But in the original Greek, they are plural. And there's a very important reason why this is true. Paul is giving us categories of thought. And in those categories, multiple things will fall. There are many things in life that are true. There are many things in life that are noble. There are many things in life that are, uh, what's the next one? Just, whatever is right. And Paul is saying, Although, as Christians, you should be restrictive in your thinking in some ways, there's a lot of things that still ought to be the object of our thinking. And so by using these plurals and using these clauses and these adjectives, Paul is saying, put your thinking intentionally into these categories, but there are many things that will fall into these categories. All right, so that's the first six of these eight. They follow this, this, uh, this um, language, whatever. The final two of these eight are here, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Okay, and in in this grammatical pattern, they both begin with the word if. It's uh, not repeated in the NIV, but but it is implied. And um, each one of these, this word if is a conjunction, and it's a conditional conjunction. It's telling us, think with a filter, and if something falls into that, then think about these things. Now, the word, if anything, is um, repeated in the original original Greek. This phrase, if anything, should appear here in the original Greek. It doesn't in the NIV, just for stylistic reasons. Now, the grammatical differences between these first six clauses and these last two clauses, they're just stylistic. Paul isn't trying to, by changing the grammar... He's not trying to signal to us anything in particular. He's just trying to give us some variety in the way things are presented. And so these eight clauses then, even though they follow two different forms, these eight clauses tell us the kinds of thoughts we ought to have as Christians. They tell us how our mind ought to be operating. If we're going to be the boss of our thoughts, we need to filter our thoughts in these eight broad categories. And be intentional about using these eight broad categories in terms of the way that we think. Now, at the end of the verse, we come to the actual command. Remember, I told you that this passage of Scripture, verses 4 through 9, has a bunch of commands in it. 
All right? The actual command in this verse is the word think. And the object of that command is things. This about such part in the original language is implied. There's only two words here um, in the original Greek, the word think and the word things. And Paul is telling us then that um, this is how we should use our minds. If we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ and use our minds in ways that are pleasing to God, there are certain ways that we ought to think, and they should fall into one of these eight categories. All right, that's the grammar for this passage of Scripture. That is, as I have said, the core of what is going on in this passage of Scripture. Our passage, we're looking at Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And I said the, the first, uh, the core of these, uh, of verse 8, consists of eight clauses followed by a command. I showed you visually those eight clauses, and I showed you the command. Now, the eight categories that are described in this verse, in verse 8, I want to show to you, and I want to walk them through one at a time, all right? And so I think that this is really helpful for us to understand um, what Paul is telling us in this passage, what Paul is teaching us in these verses. All right, and so let's go ahead and walk through each of these, verse, each of these words in the command, in the, uh, in the conditional clauses that we find in this passage. We begin, of course, in our verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. The first word, the first clause that describes how we ought to think is that we ought to think about anything and everything that falls into the category of what is true. Now, what is, what is true? What does the word truth mean? It means an accurate description of reality. That is one very good definition of the word true. Contrary to what we are, thought, what we are taught often or what is implied in our world, there are not multiple truths. Gravity is as true for me as it is for you. People use language like true for me or true for you. They're trying to describe an opinion or an experience. They are not really describing truth. Truth is objective. Truth is outside of us. There is only really one truth in any situation. The rest are um, ideas or interpretations or thoughts about truth. So contrary to what we're taught in our world, there are not multiple truths out there, and we can select the one that we like. No, there's one truth, but truth does operate on multiple levels. We can use the word truth, or we can describe things that are true in different senses, and each one of them has a level to it. The most basic level of truth is what I would call a fact. Facts are true. And they are true whether people acknowledge them or not, whether people like them or not, whether people live by them or not. Facts are facts, and facts are true. One example of a factual truth is that you are sitting in this room at this moment. Not if you're watching on video, obviously, but those of you who are here, we are sitting, you are sitting, I am standing, in this room. That's a fact. You can dislike it if you choose. Okay, but you can't change the fact that it's true. It's a fact. That's one level of interpretation. I would say the most basic level of interpretation. But there's more to truth than just facts. There's also interpretation, and that is, I would say, level of truth. There are correct interpretations and incorrect interpretations. Correct interpretations are also true. 
And in many ways, they're more important than facts are. It may be true that you are sitting in this room right now. That's a fact. But if I interpret that to mean something, my interpretation could be true or false. I could interpret the fact that you are sitting in this room to mean that you are interested in this message. It might not be. You might be here for other reasons. You might be here to get out of the house. You might be here because you want to see somebody else. You might be here because somebody, your parents or your spouse, dragged you, encouraged you to be here. All right? And so my interpretation of your presence here this morning could be true. It could be false. But there is one correct interpretation. It may vary, but it is true or false. And so what we're called to think about in this passage, when the Bible says, think about whatever is true, the Bible is telling us that we should think about both fact and interpretation, that we should process in our brains not only the facts that we encounter, but we should seek through thinking and through investigation to find the correct interpretation of those facts, the, the proper meaning from those facts. And without going down a deep rabbit hole right now, which I could very easily do, let me just say that this is a real problem in our world right now. If you hear the word narrative describing situations in the world, what people are doing is they are taking facts, or maybe partial facts, and they are trying to weave a story together. That's what a narrative is. It's a story. A lot of what is presented as fact or as true in our, in our culture is a, a fact or a partial fact that is weaved into a story, and then we are told, except this story is true. The story might be true. It might not be true. As Christians, we are commanded by God to think through the facts to the proper interpretation as best as we can. And because God is true, because God is, in fact, truth, because truth is part of God's essential nature. That means his word is the basis on which we as Christians evaluate facts and interpretations to decide whether or not they are true or false. Whatever comes into our minds, the Bible says, as Christians, we need to process them. and We need to think about whether or not these are true, as the Bible would say they are true or whether they are false. Whatever is true, we should hold to. Whatever is false, we should reject. And so when the Bible tells us these eight categories of things we should think about as Christians, the first one is that which is true, an accurate description of reality. The second one is given to us also, in, again, in verse 8. All these come from verse 8. Whatever is noble. And the word noble is a word that means honorable or um, another way of thinking about it is it means something that causes people to look up. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we still use this metaphor of looking up to somebody, right? When we meet somebody that we admire, someone that we think is an honorable person, we might say, I look up to that person. I look up to my father. I look up to my brother. I look up to whoever. We are saying we find that person to be honorable in one, other, in one way or another, this is describing, this word noble is describing something that is worthy of respect. And in many ways, it applies to people and character qualities about those people. So let me ask you, do you look up to somebody? 
Is there someone in your life or many people in your life that you look up to, that you think they are noble, that you think there's something about them that kind of elevates you and makes you um, strive to be better or desire to be better in some way? That's what Paul is saying here when he uses this word noble. And if you know somebody that you look up to, someone that you find to be noble and honorable, what is it about that person that causes you to look up to him or her? Is it the person's honesty? Is it his or her kindness? Is it that person's work ethic? Is it that person's understanding of Scripture or the wisdom that they've accumulated over the years? Paul is saying, as Christians, we should think these things. When we, when we find ourselves looking up to a person or looking up to a thing, we should process why it's admirable to us, why it is noble to us, why it causes us to look up to it. And, and this can refer to not only people, but also to, uh, to things, like a work of art. What is it that raises your spirit and causes you to feel and look and think nobility about a work of art or a product that's really well-designed and well-built? What makes you admire the work, the output of human beings? Whatever it is, that's noble. And the Bible says you should think about such things as a Christian. The third thing Paul tells us that we should think about, the third category, is that which is right. That which is right. This means, of course, what is righteous. That's, that would be kind of the the more um, theological and biblical term for something. And that's obviously the opposite of what is wrong. What is right is the opposite of what is wrong. Now, among beings, God is the only one who is truly righteous. He is the only one, and in fact, he is the standard of what is right and wrong. God's very being, his very nature sets the standard for what is right and what is wrong in this world. He's the only one who can properly interpret and properly say, this is right and that is wrong. And so the command here, when Paul says, whatever is right, it's to think about the things that come into your mind and process them as to whether or not they are right in God's sight or wrong in God's sight. This is talking about the morality of a thing. We should not just accept every idea that we are presented with. Instead, we should think about it in terms of these categories. And one of those categories is, is this right or is it wrong? Is it righteous or is it sinful? <laughs> and then based on your evaluation, you think about those things according to God's standards. The next word that Paul uses here, the next phrase, the next clause, is that whatever is pure. And that means untainted by evil. It means untainted by evil. Now, Paul has used this word already in chapter 1 of Philippians. And there he used it with regard to people. He talked about people who are pure in, the way, in their motivation, in, in the reasons why they do what they do. And I think that's what he has in mind here, that when we encounter other people, we should think about what they're doing and whether or not it rises from a good motive or a bad one, a pure one that's unmixed with evil or one that is shaded for the person's own benefit with evil. Have you ever wondered about, has anybody ever said something to you, maybe something flattering to you, or they've acted toward you in a way, and at first blush, it made you feel good, it made you think well of them, but then as you thought about it, you started to wonder whether or not their motivation was actually pure in what they said or did. 
We've all done that, right? We've all encountered people who said things or done things to us that may have come from pure motives, but maybe not. Here Paul is saying that's something we ought to think about. When we encounter other people, we ought to think about their words and their actions as to whether or not those words and actions are motivated by righteousness, by something that's untainted by evil, or if that person has an evil motivation for what they do. That ought to be part of the mental processing that we go to go through when we encounter other things. The next phrase is the phrase, whatever is lovely. The next clause is whatever is lovely. And that word means attractive. Attractive. It's, this word appears only here in the New Testament. And it's a word that means to call forth love. It's sort of like love at first sight. Okay, You see something, and instantly you have an affection for it, an instant attraction to it. By the way, love at first sight is a myth. There is attraction at first sight, yes. But you only know if that person is lovely or worthy of loving as you get to know them. Okay, And so the fact that you were attracted to somebody at first sight, and they ultimately that turned out to be someone that you, were, you know, became your spouse... That doesn't mean you had love at first sight for them. It means you had a strong attraction to them, and that attraction proved to be a good one, a true one. This is talking about that same idea. It's something that arrests your attention because it's so good-looking or it's so um, interesting to think about. It is so compelling for your mind, as opposed to something like a bad car wreck, which also draws your attention, but for the wrong reasons. Not because it is lovely, not because it has inherent qualities of attractiveness to it, but rather it's something that's so horrific that you can't look away from it. As we live in this world, we are presented with ideas. We are presented with things, some of which are immediately compelling, but sometimes they're compelling for a good reason and sometimes for a bad reason. Paul tells us not to dwell on things that that arrest our attention for evil reasons or horrific reasons. Instead, we should think about things that are attractive, Things that are lovely. The next phrase is, the next clause is, whatever is admirable. Whatever is admirable or admirable. And to define this means something that a lot of people, that many people find to be good or commendable. And this is a word that describes someone's actions. When we watch what somebody does, do people think of it as being a commendable action or a Regrettable action, one that's worthy of applause and praise or one that is worthy of condemnation. And kind of an example, I guess, is to think about courage. When we see somebody act in a courageous way, whether we're Christians or non-Christians, we look up to that. We find it to be admirable. It's something that a large group of people all over the world would see a courageous act and say, that is a good thing. That's a commendable thing. All right? To give you kind of a more concrete example, imagine or think about someone who sees a car coming. It's maybe the car is speeding and the driver is not paying good attention, is driving too fast for the situation, and a child wanders out into the road. Many people might be there observing this situation. The only one who is admirable, though, is the one who runs out into the street and grabs the child and gets the child out of the way or stops the car to keep the child from getting run over. That's a courageous act. And if any of us, if all of us were to witness such a thing, we would say that's an admirable thing to do. 
We would all agree together that this is a commendable, that courage is a commendable virtue. Paul is saying in the categories of thought that we choose to focus our minds on, one of the things we ought to focus on are things that are good, that are commendable. The very best things that human beings do ought to be something that we think about. When we see somebody act in a way that's commendable, we ought to process that and think about it so that we add it to our character as human beings. The final two clauses are, again, worded differently. They're, if anything, is excellent or praiseworthy. And so that brings us to the word excellent. The word excellent means unusually great. And again, we throw around the idea of greatness really haphazardly in our culture. We commend many things to be great that are, you know, good or average, but we are kind of, um, we're kind of liberal in the way we throw around the idea of greatness. Excellence is something that is beyond great. It's at a whole nother level. It excels, the very root word of it, everything else. And this, this also is a word that only appears here in Paul's letters. And it describes something that is way better than anything else. When we encounter something that is a notch above, that is, that is above and transcendent of everything else, the Bible says we ought to think about that thing. We ought to think about that character quality or that act of a person. And we ought to consider what makes it so excellent and how we can take the principles of that excellence and apply them in our own life so that our character and our actions are more excellent. Finally, Paul uses the word praiseworthy. If anything is praiseworthy, this means something that gets approval. Something that gets approval. And usually people are the ones giving the approval. Okay, All of these words, some of them are common New Testament words. Some of them come from the larger culture. That are, and so they are rare in the New Testament for that reason. This is one of those words that comes from the larger culture, praiseworthy. And normally it's people who are doing the praising in the um, secular sense of the word. In the secular context, this is something that is popular. Something that's praiseworthy in the secular world is something that is popular. If a lot of people are praising something, if a lot of people are downloading a particular song, or going to a particular web page and saying how great it is, or a particular restaurant, or looking at a particular person and saying, this person is awesome, they're worthy of praise. Paul says that ought to get our attention. But as Christians, God is the standard of what is praiseworthy, not humanity. Sometimes humanity does recognize things that God would say are praiseworthy, but I think Paul's idea here is, would God praise this thing or not? What has God praised in his word? That's the kind of thing we ought to be looking for in the world around us. And so these eight categories give us some things that are um, filters for how we think, filters for the way we process the world around us. These eight categories tell us we ought to control our thoughts and concentrate on things that fall into one or more of these categories in our lives as Christians. The eight categories described here tell us the, way, the, the types of things that ought to filter our thoughts. Next, we come to the command in the passage. And the command in verse 8 is to think. Think about such things. And the word translated think is not the usual word for think. It is one of Paul's favorite words, but it's more than just um, to process with your mind. It's a word that really has the idea of evaluation. 
It's a word in a sense of mental judgment. Paul is telling us, don't just let the thoughts about these things pass through your mind. He is saying, when you see something that is true, when you see something that's noble, when you see something that's right or pure or whatever, anything in these categories, pay attention to it and take it apart in your mind. Process it. Evaluate it. Think about what makes it the way that it is so that you can understand it and incorporate it into your culture. It's the opposite of just mindlessly accepting everything that is thrown your way. And this is important for us to to consider, to think about. As we live our lives, we are presented with all kinds of potential things to think about. We are given information either information in the news or information that you are to act on in your job or information about your children. We are given information all the time as people. And when we consume popular culture, when we listen to music or watch movies or watch television, we are also presented with information. We're presented with ideas. When we talk to people, they present us with ideas. They present us with opinions, sometimes opinions that are presented as if they were facts. And it's very easy for us, especially in the culture in which we live, where we have smartphones that can distract us every minute of the day. It's important for us not just to accept every idea that is presented to us. And a lot of people do this, don't they? A lot of people say, I heard this, and all they do is they repeat something that somebody said to them, and they haven't thought about it, they haven't investigated it, they haven't evaluated it at all. That is not the Christian way to use your mind. The Bible says as Christians, whether we are receiving an idea that's generated in our own heads, whether it's something that is presented to us by somebody outside of us, someone that we love or dislike, whether it is... Um, something that we consume from popular media or popular culture, everything that is presented to us, the Bible says, we should think about it in terms of these categories. Is it something that is true? Is it something that is noble, that causes us to, to, to elevate our thinking? Is it something that is righteous? Is it something that is untainted by evil and pure and so on? We should think about these categories, and then we should choose the things that make it through those filters and really process them, really unpack them. What makes it noble? What makes it pure? What makes it righteous? And more importantly, as a follower of Christ, how can I incorporate those things, incorporate those things into my own life? Paul is saying, unlike what our tendency is, and what, unlike the world around us, where we uncritically accept everything that is thrown at us. As Christians, we need to process everything that is presented to us. And we need to sort out the true from the false, the noble from the crass, the righteous from the unrighteous, the lovely from the ugly. The Bible is telling us that we need as Christians to be intentional in our thinking, and that means letting these categories filter and sort. Now, you can't really, you can change somewhat, of course, what you're presented with. You can make choices about media and about who you spend time talking to and whatever, but the truth of the matter is you're going to be presented with all kinds of ideas, some of which you many of which you cannot. The point of the matter is not so much to choose what your input sources are, though that I mean, obviously, that can be important, too. The point is, whatever the input coming in is, don't accept it uncritically. Instead, filter it according to these categories. And then, once something passes all the way through the filter and makes it, the Bible says, then consider this. Unpack it. Take it apart. 
Think about what it's meaning. This is a call to very reflective type of thinking, the kind of thinking that's really almost gone in our world. People spend so much time consuming media, looking at their phones, texting other people. Going, you know, we, we have all these things that hardly anybody, it seems to me, sets time to really meditate and think about the meaning of things, the significance of them. But the Bible says if we're, as Christians, if we're going to rejoice in the Lord, part of that is being really intentional about the things that, that occupy our time, that occupy our thinking. It's a call to be intentional about what you're thinking. And because this is a command, it means that you have a choice. The word translated think means to take into account. And because this is a command, you have a choice. You can either be obedient to this command and really be intentional about what you think about, or you could just let every thought that passes through your mind be accepted. Let every idea that's presented to you be accepted. The question is not whether or not you are going to have thoughts. The question is, are you going to be the boss of those thoughts, or are those thoughts going to boss you around? Because here's the thing. If you uncritically accept things, it's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you act. Uncritical acceptance of false ideas will warp your character and will warp your outlook on the world. It will change you. And so as a Christian, the Bible says we need to be intentional about the way we think. And, you know, again, there are many categories. Earlier on in this passage, Paul talks about anxiety. He talks about don't be anxious about anything. That's a choice. You can choose to think about the possible negative future of something, or you can change your thoughts to thoughts of prayer, thoughts of what is true, and so on. Also in our world, we are presented with materialistic thoughts, and we can think about that, how much we need that new car, or that raise that we'd like to get. We can let that become the occupation of our thinking. Or we can think lustful thoughts. We can see someone who is lovely, one of the categories Paul talks about here, and we can turn that in a way that is sinful for us to think about. We can think resentful thoughts. We can judge the motivations of other people without evidence. We can come to conclusions and choose to resent them, or any other kind of thinking. If you indulge those thoughts, you can do them in a way that is obedient to God's word or disobedient to God's word. That's a choice that each one of us has as a follower of Jesus Christ. So you have a choice in this matter, but as a Christian, your mind belongs to God. That's why God tells us to think a certain way. It tells us to be the boss of our thoughts. Christ gave his life for you to redeem you from the stranglehold that sin has on every one of us when we come into this world. He also gave his life to redeem you from God's eternal wrath for your sins. And so since he's redeemed us as followers of Christ, that means we have freedom. We have freedom to really think about what we think about, to be intentional in our thinking. As Christians, our minds belong to God. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with this verse, Romans 12, 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. There it is, the redemption of Christ. He's had mercy on us and bought us back from the wrath of God and from the stranglehold that sin had upon us. And Paul says, in view of that, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Your mind is part of your body. 
And so Paul goes into that in verse 2. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. And that phrase conform is so interesting, that word. It means to squeeze into a mold. The truth of the matter is, the media you consume, the ideas that you get in the news, the things people say to you apart from Christ are designed to try to squeeze you into a mold. They're, trying to, they're, they're designed to make you worldly like the rest of the world, to make you unholy like the rest of the world. And if you are uncritical in the way that you think, critical in a biblical sense, the world's going to squeeze you into its mold. But instead, the Scripture says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is what Paul is describing here. He's unpacking for us the renewing of our minds. He's saying, be intentional about the categories that you use to process your thoughts, and then really think about those pass through the filter of your category, of those categories. As you encounter ideas in this world, ideas from other conversations that you have with people, in media that you consume, in the news, in whatever sense, as you encounter ideas, the biblical way to process those ideas is to think about them in these categories, to filter them out. The matter is that everything that human beings do begins in the mind. Every project that you start and complete started as an idea in your mind. Every decision that you made, whether right or wrong, began as a thought in your mind. And so thinking is critical to living a life that is pleasing to God, living a life that rejoices in the Lord, includes being intentional about the way that you think. And so as part of his overall thrust and teaching for this passage, what I call the big idea in this passage, Paul tells us that we ought to rejoice in the Lord. And when we rejoice in the Lord, it's going to do certain things to us. It's going to make us gentle. It's going to make us prayerful when anxious. It's going to make us intentional in our thinking and obedient to God's word. And so focusing in on the point for this, today's message, a better brand of happiness, true joy, comes from being intentional in your thinking. Are you the boss of your thoughts in a way that is pleasing to God's word? Or do you uncritically accept everything that comes into your mind that you are presented with, whether it originated in your mind or originated outside of you? Do you believe everything that you think? Or do you process your thoughts according to the categories described in the passage, according to criteria that is pleasing to God? If you rejoice in the Lord, you need to be critical about the way that you think, critical in a biblical sense, intentional in what you set your mind upon. This is a better brand of happiness.